welcome to the second to last week of our series, Through the Ten Commandments. We've been calling that Law School. You might remember, three weeks ago, I stood in this exact spot, and I told you that we were pushing the Sixth Commandment until later in August because we had a guest speaker we were very excited about. Well, that day has arrived. And surprise, it is me. Uh, I told the 9 a.m. that was the biggest bait and switch in Severn Covenant history, but that really, all jokes aside, that was not our intention. We actually did have a guest speaker lined up, um, supposed to teach today, unfortunately ended up having a prior obligation that he just could not cancel. Hopefully we'll be able to reschedule him in the future. We are still excited about that. But today you're stuck with me one more time, Pastor Ryan. We'll be back here in the pulpit next week. So all that housekeeping aside, let's just jump into the sixth commandment, which simply says, you shall not murder. Now, what I'm about to say, all jokes aside for a second, I mean sincerely. If you're listening today, whether in person or online, and you've broken this commandment or you're contemplating specifically and explicitly breaking this commandment, obviously this teaching is for you. I hope that the Word of God here will both change you and give you hope. However, I say that to say since only about 0.006% or less of our population actually commits what the law considers murder every year. I think we're on pretty safe statistical ground to say that most of you are not and have no plans to become murderers. Thank God for that. So I think a lot of of us might see that then and say, well, this is kind of irrelevant for me. I'm not going to murder anybody. I can check this one off as complete. But, but if that's the way you're thinking about that, I think you're missing kind of a bigger picture here. In the New Testament, Jesus and even his beloved disciple, John, both of them taught that murder is really ultimately born out of a heart that hates and devalues another human being. So really, the, the real point of this commandment for people who follow Jesus is not simply to avoid wrongful human death. I think most of us achieve that. The, the real point is to promote, treasure, and value human life. The sixth commandment isn't really about death. It's about life. And, and we get a really clear, really powerful picture of what that means in a story recorded for us in Genesis chapters 8 in chapter 9. So I want to go ahead and read that here at the beginning before we dive in. This is going to be our main passage that we'll hang out in today. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 20, and we'll read all the way through Genesis 9, verse 6. Here's what the Word of God says. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground. And all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What I want to 
at least help us see today is that this story really teaches us at least four important truths about human life that we need to understand if we're going to get to the heart of and obey the sixth commandment. So I'll just share with you what those four truths are here at the beginning, and then we'll spend the rest of our time working through each one of them as we dig into the story. Truth number one that we're going to see is that human life is valuable. Truth number two, human life is unique. Number three, human life is broken. And then lastly, number four, human life needs a hero. Now, before we dive into any of that, let me just, I think it's important to start with a little disclaimer before we get into the four truths. Um, I think it's probably obvious that this, this topic of human life naturally leads to discussions about issues that are complex, controversial, often very emotional for people, from abortion, euthanasia, and suicide, all the way to racial justice, the death penalty, animal versus human rights, and probably a dozen things in between. I'm going to touch on a few of those issues as we go, but here's, here's the main thing I want to say. There is no way I can do real justice to even one of those topics in a single 40-minute teaching. What I'm asking from you, a little grace, is that when the sermon's over, please don't ask, why didn't you say that? The answer is, just can't say everything. But I'd love to have a discussion with you if you want to talk about something further than what we can say this morning. What I do want to do this morning is not, not give you a detailed answer to how Christians should view every single issue related to every single specific human life. Instead, I want to lay a foundation for how God calls his followers to define and view all human life so that all of us are better equipped to think about all of those more specific issues in a deeper, more reasonable, more God-honoring way. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or maybe you are and you're not sure where you stand on all these things, what my hope is, is that you'll at, least, you'll at least be able, when we're done today, to understand where Christians are coming from so that we can all have a more honest, respectful, and helpful dialogue. Sound good? Sounds like you're nervous. Great. All right, let's get started. Number one, human life is... When you start with disclaimers, everybody's like, oh no, here we go. Number one, it's not going to be bad, I promise. Number one, human life is valuable. So let me just, let me, let me set the scene for what's happening in Genesis chapters 8 and 9. In the chapters right before this, I think most people are familiar with this story, God sent a flood to destroy the people he created because they had become so evil. But God decided to preserve a remnant of his people and other living creatures by having a man named Noah build this great big boat. We call it an ark. And he was going to put Noah and his family and an assortment of animals on this boat to survive the flood. And that really brings us to the part of the story we're looking at today. The floodwaters have receded, and Noah and his family have stepped out on dry land again for the first time in 150 days. Now, I think a lot of people approach the story of the flood, and and they get distracted and bogged down with questions like, you know, was it a worldwide flood? Was it a local flood? Were there dinosaurs on the ark? What did Noah do with all the animal poop that was on the ark? And where where did the ark come to rest? Can we still find it today? And all these questions that are fun to debate, but for the original audience, would have not been important. Those would have not been the things they were focusing on. Instead, what they would have focused on were the very clear, very obvious parallels between this story and the original creation story back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So think about it. Now God has basically uncreated the wicked world, and and now Noah and his family are stepping out onto this new, fresh world. And that's why Noah and this new creation are very purposefully described here with the same language that Adam and the original creation were described with. We're told, be fruitful and multiply. You have rule over the animals. You're made in God's image. All that language comes from Genesis 1 and 2. Here's the point. 
The person who wrote down these accounts of creation and flood, they were not simply recording historical events, although I believe that's true. They were meticulously and carefully crafting these stories to draw our attention to certain details that teach us bigger truths than just, you know, how old is the earth or or where can we dig to find archaeological remains or all those kinds of things. And I would argue that the main truth that this specific story is trying to teach us is the one that we mentioned already, our first big idea today, that human life is valuable. So think about for a second the bigger context of the story, the big picture. So human beings were made by God, designed by God to enjoy and take care of, of the good gift of creation that He gave them and to honor Him in the process. And they blew it. They like royally screwed this up. According to Genesis 6-5, let me just quote this for you. This is, this is God's words for the reason He decided to send the flood. He said, I'm sending the flood because every intention of the thoughts of mankind's heart. Now, listen to those words again. Every intention of the thoughts of mankind's heart. Can't get any deeper than that. Was only evil continually. So, you can't really get any worse. Sounds pretty bad. The the surprising thing about the flood story is not that God decided to judge humanity. The surprising thing is that He decided to give them a second chance. That's what Genesis chapters 8 and 9 are showing us. And what's really shocking to me is that He gives them this second chance, and He's not even cautious about it. He doesn't, when Noah and his family step off the boat, He he doesn't say to them, hey guys, let's you know, you just screwed this up. Let's take it easy. Let's slow down a little bit, see how this thing goes. Listen to what He actually tells them. Chapter 9, verse 1, the very first thing God says when they get off the boat is this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's Bible speak for start making babies. I want humans and I want lots of them and I want them to fill the earth. You know, the same humans that just like screwed everything up, I want more of those. And, and if you compare that to the way the ancient Babylonians told their flood story, I think most of us understand that other cultures have flood stories. Um, just compare it to the Atrahasis epic. This is one of the Babylonian stories. In that story, the main problem that led to the flood for them was human overpopulation. So when the flood was over, the gods of the Babylonians decided that the way we're going to make sure that never happens again is we're going to make women sterile and we're going to create high infant mortality. So they do the exact opposite of what the God of the Bible does here. The Bible's message is unique. Even though humanity deserved punishment, God still values human life. He wants to see it grow. He wants to see it flourish. So that's kind of the big picture view. But now, I think really the clearest indication that God values human life in this story is found in the details. Listen to verses 5 through 6. God says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. We're going to talk more about those verses in a minute. For now, let me just point this out. When one human life, this is what he's saying here, when one human life takes the life of another human, what's the consequence? Their life will be taken as a reckoning, a life for a life. Now, I'm not going to get into whether or not this serves as the foundation for our modern-day death penalty, another sermon for another day. What's most important to see for our purposes today is how this principle that God lays down, a life for a life, it, it highlights the value that God places on human life. In this fresh new world, God doesn't want people to murder each other anymore, so He institutes a very forceful policy to deter it. 
Now, in other ancient law codes, like the Babylonian law codes of of Hammurabi, maybe you've heard of those before, in those law codes, sometimes money could be paid as a reckoning for taking human life. But you'll notice nowhere in this passage does God say that that will be enough. No amount of money can be placed on a human life. The reason why a life is required for a life is because nothing else comes close in value. Human life is priceless, so priceless to God that we see Him preserving it, promoting its growth, and protecting it with forceful and serious consequences. Human life is valuable. Now the question is, why? Why is human life so valuable in God's sight? And that brings us to the next big truth that this story teaches us. Number two, human life is unique. Listen to verses two through five. God here is speaking to Noah and his sons. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. Now, a second ago, I told you there there are a lot of parallels between this story and the original creation story back in Genesis 1 through 2. But actually, these verses show us one major difference. Back in the original story, God explicitly gave Adam and Eve um, permission to eat plant life, but He didn't say anything else. But now in this story, He explicitly allows them to kill and eat animal life in addition to plant life. However, here's the key thing. He doesn't give his approval for the flip side of that. He does not give his approval for animals killing and eating humans. As a matter of fact, he says that he will require a reckoning even from animals that kill humans. Now, I have no idea what that exactly looks like, how God intends to like actually carry that out. But, but the point is, human life is obviously in God's sight unique and treated differently than animal and plant life. Now, let me just caveat real quick. That doesn't mean God doesn't care about the rest of creation. Actually, right here in this passage, we see a hint that He does. In in verse 4, God commands His people not to eat animal flesh with its lifeblood. Now, whatever else that means, at the very least, it's a reminder to His human creation to treat animal life with respect and value even when we're using it for nourishment. So, caveat aside, though, it's very obvious human life is treated differently and is unique. So the question now is, well, what makes it so different from the rest of creation? And God tells us in verse 6, He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So the reason why taking human life is such a big deal to God, the reason why He'll require a life for a life, is because by definition, human life is the only part of creation made in God's image. God never says that about animals or plants or mountains or oceans or the sky. Scripture does say that all those things can declare God's glory in a certain way, but only human life above all others was made to uniquely show what God is like. And there's probably lots of ways that's true, but just think about a few ways. We're the only part of creation that can discern between moral right and wrong. We're the only part of creation that understands and speaks actual words like God, and we're the only part of creation that is moved by and seeks to create beauty like God. We could keep going, but let me just, here's a little analogy to help us think it through. 
all the rest of creation, mountains, skies, ocean, plants, animals, they're like, they're like masterpieces painted by the artist hanging on the walls of his home. They're showing off his creativity, his beauty, his talent. But humans are like the sons and daughters of the artist living in the rooms of his home, reflecting most clearly his heart and his mind and his desires and his will. Here's what that means. When you take the life of a human, you're not just entering into the artist's home and destroying one of his paintings. I mean, that's bad. That has a lot to say about how we treat the environment, how we treat animals. But when you enter into the artist's home and you take one of the lives of his humans, what you're doing is destroying one of his children and one of your brothers or sisters. You're not, you're not simply spitting in his face. You're stabbing him in the heart. Human life is uniquely valuable because it alone bears God's image. Now, before we move on to big truth number, number three, I, I want to point out something else that, that's in this passage that I think is really vital, especially when we're talking about how valuable and unique life is. When, when God talks about that, when He talks about human life throughout this entire passage, you'll notice He doesn't put any qualifiers on it. All He says is man, over and over and over. Man should not shed the blood of man, for, for man is made in God's image. And what He's talking about there is man. Kind. So what, what that means is that all mankind, without mention of gender, race, language, intelligence, ability, all mankind is unique and equally valuable in God's eyes, no qualifiers. But then God, He, he further kind of reinforces this truth by connecting human life with human blood in verses 4 through 5, which when you probably heard that at first, it might have just sounded weird. So let me read it to you and kind of walk you through what this means in my, my train of thought here. So listen to verses 4 through 5. God says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So you see the connection. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. The word here that's translated life, uh, the Hebrew behind it is actually the word nephesh. Some of you may have heard that before. It usually doesn't simply refer to life in the sense of being alive versus being dead. There's another Hebrew word that usually means that. This Hebrew word instead often refers to someone's inner life, to their what's often translated their soul, their inner being, their inner person. So, so think about this. Whatever else God might mean by this, when He connects someone's life, their soul, their, their inner person with, with their blood in verse 5, what He's doing is He's hinting at a truth that gets developed later in Scripture that being human cannot really be disconnected from our physical, material existence. Life, soul, person, and blood go together. And what that means is even if, even if our soul and our body are separated at death, that's not the ideal. That's, that's a temporary situation. That's why Christians, following the lead of Jewish teaching before them, we don't believe that our final destination is simply to be disembodied souls in heaven. We believe our final hope is to have our bodies resurrected for body and soul to be united forever. Here's the point of everything I just said. Humans, by definition, are a single, inextricably connected unit of body and soul. Now, you might say, well, why in the world are we talking about this? Number one, it's, it's there. It's in the text. We have to talk about it. But number two, here's, here's really why. Most people in our society, even I would argue many Christians, don't naturally think about human nature that way. And that has profound implications for the kinds of lives that we value. So you would ask, well, well how do we normally understand human nature? Thank you for asking. The more common way 
for people to understand human nature in our modern world, even though we probably don't think about it like this, even though we've never heard this term for it, the more common way is something called dualism. Now, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Sometimes my southern accent like creeps back in. Dualism, D-U-A-L, that's what I'm trying to say. Layman's terms, this is a, a two-story view of human nature. So according to this um, modern concept, humans are like a two-story building. The upper floor is what we would call our true personhood, our soul, who we really are. And then the lower floor is our physical material existence, our bodies. But there's no staircase between the two. There's no connection. We are, to borrow a phrase from the Will Smith movie, I, Robot, we are a ghost in a machine. So, so what that means is who we are as unique souls or persons is not connected to our material bodies. How we use our bodies has no real effect on our soul. And as you can probably tell, that, that way of viewing human nature is completely at odds with everything we just saw in Genesis 9. And that explains so much why Christians and non-Christians sometimes don't see eye to eye on many issues related to human nature and human biology. We, we struggle to have a conversation because it's almost like we're speaking two different languages. We're using the same words, we're using the same phrases, but we have different definitions. So what I want to do just for a second is think about, think about how all of that plays out in regards to abortion, a charged, an emotionally charged issue. I told you a second ago, I'll repeat it. My goal is not to talk about all the nuances of that issue. Love to have a one-on-one conversation about that. My goal right now is to simply help us all understand the foundational assumptions and beliefs that Christians and non-Christians are carrying into this conversation so that maybe we can have a more fruitful dialogue about these things. So let's, let's jump into it. We, we just established that the Judeo-Christian view of human life is that the soul or the person is intimately bound up with the physical material existence. As Genesis 9 said, life is in the blood. If you view human nature that way, then what you have is a very clear, observable, undeniable way of determining if someone is a fully human person and therefore valuable. What we're saying is that if you have the core physical or biological markers of human life, then you are a human person. That's why Christians historically have believed that a fertilized egg at conception is a full human person just as unique and valuable as any other human person because this is just a scientific fact. It has unique human DNA completely present at that moment, all the necessary biological, physical code for human life. So since it has blood, since it has the physical material, it then has life. It then has a soul. So Christians don't disconnect the realm of the soul from the realm of the body. So that's the Christian way of viewing those things. The prevailing secular view, we just discussed this, is that the human soul, the human person is completely separate from their physical bodily existence. So in other words, just because core biological markers of human life are present doesn't necessarily mean that an actual human soul or person is present. And that's why when you, when you survey our culture, there's so much disagreement in the secular world about what criteria actually makes someone a fully human person. Is it, is it a certain amount of intelligence or reasoning capability? If so, what is that amount? Where's the cutoff? Is it Is it the ability to feel pain or maybe value our own existence? If so, how do we measure that? Maybe it's the ability to survive on its own. If that's the case, what does that tell us about the physically disabled or the mentally challenged or the psychologically ill? When you separate human life into two 
disconnected parts, soul and body, what you end up with is no clear, measurable, undeniable standard for which human lives actually count as a valuable human person with rights that are equal to every other human person. Now, it's no secret, I don't think, which view I believe is right. But let me just for a minute appeal to those of you who maybe disagree with me or maybe you're just undecided. The ironic thing about everything we just said is that that Christians are often the ones that are accused of bringing faith or philosophy into a conversation that we're told should be based solely on science. But if you were listening to what I just said, out of the two ways we just discussed, the Christian way of viewing things actually places a greater premium on on unobservable, excuse me, observable scientific measures of human life, while the secular view places a greater premium on unobservable philosophical measures that nobody can agree on. Not only that, Christians are often criticized for being exclusive. We, we keep people out. But out of the two views, it's the Christian view that is the more inclusive. The only standard we have for determining if a human life is actually a person of equal value to any other person is this. Are you biologically human? That's it. It's the secular view that sets up all these arbitrary standards that end up excluding certain lives that don't meet their criteria. Here's the point of saying all that. If you're here today and you have human DNA, if human blood is coursing through your veins, you are just as unique and you are just as valuable in God's eyes as every single other person. That is the teaching of the Judeo-Christian scriptures and the way that Christians and Jews have understood this issue for centuries. The question now becomes, well, if that's true, if that's true, why do we so often not act like it? If that's the way God views human life, how come so consistently we don't view and treat other humans as equally unique and valuable? And that kind of brings us to our third big truth in this story, that human life is broken. So let's Let's reorient ourselves in our story. We we were just covering some heady stuff. Let's jump back into the details of the story. So go back to Genesis 1. Remember, Adam and Eve were made in God's image to reflect what he's like. When they rebelled against him then, they broke that image. They failed to reflect his image. They broke that image. What that meant was they forfeit their home in the garden, which essentially meant that their sin had cut them off from God's intimate and immediate presence. So, So they and their offspring now are broken images of God, cut off from God himself. All of that happens in Genesis chapter 3. Now look at what that immediately leads to in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 starts with the story of how Adam and Eve's son Cain murders their other son and his brother Abel. Violence and murder are the immediate consequences of the image of God being broken and humanity being cut off from God. Here's what this means for us. When we fail to see ourselves as and treat others as true images of God, then we open the door to viewing other humans as really no different than the rest of God's creation, including the animals we're allowed to kill. So in Genesis 9, God knows that even though he's cleansed the world, even though he started over, Humans are still broken, like Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, and that is why he is so forceful about reminding Noah and his sons that they are uniquely made in God's image. He knows that because we're broken, when we lose sight of that truth, that's when things get really ugly. 
And all we have to do is survey history to see that for ourselves. Think about the history of slavery and genocide. Almost every time a person or a nation has wanted to oppress or exterminate a group of people, they had to start by stripping that group of their uniqueness and value as humans. In other words, they had to start by dehumanizing them. We, we can see this way, way, way back in ancient history all the way up into modern history. Let me just give you a few examples. In ancient Chinese, Egyptian, and Mesopotamian literature, there are repeated references to enemies being called subhuman creatures. Fast forward to the 1400s, 1500s, European explorers who slaughtered and enslaved native peoples often called them savages, which is a term that, that just means a wild or untamed beast. Fast forward a little more, 17, 1800s, American slave owners enslaved black people. They justify that by considering them to be property, closer to mules and oxen than to humans. The Nazis in the 1930s and 40s they describe Jews as rats and untermenschen, or subhumans. And then 1994, this is 1994, during the Rwandan genocide in Africa, the Hutu people called the Tutsi people cockroaches. David Livingston Smith is the director of the Institute for Cognitive Science and Evolutionary Psychology. He summed this whole thing up pretty well when he said that in order for one human to make the drastic decision to kill another human... Here's what they have to do. This is his quote. They have to overcome the very deep and natural inhibitions they have against treating other people like game animals or vermin or dangerous predators. Now, that's coming from a secular philosopher. What he's doing is he's recognizing what the Bible teaches. We all have a very natural, deep inhibition against seeing people as less than human, but we do it anyway, over and over and over. Why? Because even though the image of God is still in us, it is broken. We are broken. We see that in Genesis thousands of years ago. We still see it today. And that leaves us with our final and obvious question, how do we fix ourselves? What is the solution to this brokenness so that we can begin to see and treat other people the way God sees and treats everyone? And that brings us to our final Big truth today, which is human life needs a hero. Try to imagine, this is hard to do, try to imagine reading the book of Genesis with a completely fresh mind. Like you, you have no background knowledge of the Bible or Judaism or Christianity. If you could do that, I want to argue that by the time you finish the story in chapter 9, I think it's fair to say you would see Noah as the hero of the story. Think about Noah for a second. In chapter 6 of the Bible, he's the first person in the Bible described as righteous. And we're also told that he did all that God commanded. So because of that, God chose him to be the man through whom he would save a remnant of humanity and start a new creation. So it looks like where Adam failed, Noah would succeed. He's going to be a new and good leader for humanity. And you can see this like right when he gets off the boat. Listen to the, listen to the very first thing Noah does when he steps off the boat in chapter 8, verses 20 through 21. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. 
If you keep reading in chapter 9, God is going to refer back to this promise he made in his heart, but now he's going to say it out loud, and he's going to call it a covenant. So think about the connection there. After, After Noah makes this sacrifice, God is so pleased with it that he makes a covenant of grace with people who've done nothing to deserve it. Noah was the righteous one, but God is now making this covenant because of Noah's sacrifice with all these other people who've done nothing to deserve it. So so Noah very much looks like the hero that that is finally going to lead humanity in the right direction. Everything's going to be different now, except it isn't. The very next time we see Noah in this story, you can read it just a few verses later in chapter 9, the very next time we see Noah... He isn't righteously offering sacrifices. He's cursing one of his sons for seeing him naked in his tent after he got drunk and passed out. It is a super weird story. But it tells us something important. Noah isn't the ultimate hero that humanity needs. He's broken just like everybody else. But what he does do is he he whets our appetites. God did not go to such great pains to paint Noah as this kind of second Adam, this savior of humanity. He didn't do all that just to get our hopes up to dash them. What he's doing is he's creating in us the desire for such a hero. He's he's pointing us forward. Noah is not the hero, but he is a shadow of the hero. Like Noah, Jesus was righteous and did all that God commanded. Unlike Noah, Jesus never failed. Like Noah, God sent Jesus to be the one through whom humanity would be saved and a new creation would start. The New, the new Testament literally calls Jesus the last Adam. But unlike Noah, Jesus didn't come just to save people from a flood of water. He came to save people from the flood of sin and all its consequences. Like Noah, Jesus made a sacrifice that led to a new covenant of grace. But unlike Noah, Jesus' sacrifice wasn't made with the blood of animals. It was made with his own blood. And his covenant doesn't merely promise not to destroy people with a flood again. It promises to give them life everlasting. Jesus is the hero of humanity that Genesis 9 makes our hearts ache for. Now imagine, though, what you're wondering at this point is, what does all of that have to do with this big theme of human life, this theme that looms so large in Genesis 9? In other words, how does Jesus, the hero of humanity, rescue humanity from hatred and murder and change us to to begin treating all humans as unique and valuable like God sees them. And, And to see the answer to that question, I would just have you consider who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And you'll see the connection with this theme of human life. Think about, to begin with, uh, the miracle of Jesus's incarnation when he actually became human. Imagine that you have made a scarf. You've made this hand-knit scarf, as all of us men like to do, and you, you have a favorite celebrity or a favorite singer, and you send it to them, and you get a note back from them that says, thanks, this is a really nice scarf. You'd, you'd probably hold on to that note. It would mean something to you. But now, imagine that every time you see this celebrity or singer on TV, maybe it's a concert or an interview, every time you see them on TV, they're wearing the scarf, like every single time. Now, if you were to get that scarf back, it would have a lot of value to you because they wore it. The Son of God, the very Son of God, clothed himself with humanity, never to take it off again for all eternity. When he did that, he was giving human life its ultimate value and treating it as supremely unique. Now, though, consider, consider the kind of human that Jesus became. 
He, he chose to enter this world. He could have done it lots of ways. He chose to enter this world as an embryo, as an unborn human life. And then when he was born, it wasn't as a Roman or a Greek, but a Jew, a minority race considered inferior by the Romans who had conquered them and pretty much everybody else. And even as a Jew, he didn't get to, to be born in King Herod's palace, but in a stable to poor, young nobodies. Jesus chose to identify with the types of human life that, especially in those days, were the most vulnerable and the least valued. He did that to teach us that no human life is less than another in God's eyes. Now, we've talked about the beginning of Jesus' life. Now consider the end of his life. In the language of the sixth commandment, Jesus was murdered. In the language of Genesis 9, his blood was shed by his fellow man, and therefore there should have been a reckoning. There should have been a life for a life. But that's where Jesus does something shocking. Hanging nailed to a cross, looking down on the men directly responsible for his murder, he cried out to God, Father, forgive them. Father, don't require a reckoning from them. Now, how could he say that? Because he was the one taking their place. He was taking the reckoning on himself. He was becoming the life given for their lives, not just to pay for that specific murder by those specific people, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus came to show us the value of human life by taking that life on himself, and he came to forgive us for devaluing human life by taking death on himself. Now, I say this a lot, but I'll say it again. All of that's true. All of that's amazing. But Jesus didn't come here just to teach us and just to forgive us. He came here to heal us and transform us. Noah rescued humanity from judgment, but Noah could not change humanity's hearts. His salvation was partial, but Jesus' salvation is complete. Jesus didn't just rescue us from judgment and forgive our sins. He also sends His Spirit to live inside of us, to give us new hearts, and to bring us together to live as what the New Testament calls a new creation and a new humanity. And the command that Jesus gives to this new humanity isn't simply the same command that, that God gave to Noah, don't take each other's lives. Jesus' command is lay down your lives out of love for each other, just like I did for you. When those floodwaters receded, ask yourself, who did God speak to? Who did He charge to make sure that human life would be valued and protected? It wasn't to some government He was going to form or to a nonprofit agency He was going to set up. He spoke to Noah and his family, the people who at that time were the new humanity, and that's what God does today. Above all others, God calls on His church, on His new humanity, to lead the world around us in treating every human life as worthy of dignity, respect, love, and protection. So that leaves us with kind of one final question, which is, what do I do with all this? What, what does this mean for me right now? And I want to speak to two different groups of people. First, if you're already a follower of Jesus, you're already part of His church, I want to encourage you, if you want to change the world around you, to value those human lives that are so often not valued, then we need to learn from our brothers and sisters who have gone before. They didn't stop infant abandonment or elevate the status of women or abolish slavery by simply praying for someone else to take action. 
You know what they did? They literally went out to, to trash heaps to find discarded babies and bring them home to care for them. They, they treated women with honor, and they commanded their husbands to love their wives sacrificially, nourishing and cherishing them as they would their own bodies, and they sought to change people's hearts and minds about slavery by forming societies and publishing newspapers and writing books and lobbying politicians. In other words, they didn't stand on the shore waiting for someone else to help while people in front of them were drowning in the river. They actually jumped in the river. And that's what God calls us to do today, and everybody has a part to play. If we're going to keep using this river analogy, we do need brave men and women to jump in the water at risk of their own lives, but we also need people on shore ready to give first aid. We need people with the capability and the skill to build bridges to get over the river safely. We need people with lots of money to fund it and to, and to be, donate to it, and we could keep going and going. The point is, if you are a follower of Jesus, God has called you. He has equipped you in your own unique way to promote and protect human life, especially the most vulnerable. That's why right here at Severn Covenant Church, I, I could tell you about some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and I won't say their names because this is not why they do it, but I could tell you about some of our brothers and sisters who work for the pregnancy clinic to provide free resources to pregnant women, or they support foster children through the Foster the Family Organization. They visit the Helping Up Mission to serve meals to men struggling with addiction, they volunteer to drive trucks to feed those that are hungry. They partner with the Anne Arundel County Police Department and their School of Charm to equip at-risk teens with important life skills. They lead a nonprofit called the Invisible Girl Project that seeks to stop the mass killing of females in India. We could keep going and going. The point is none of those people are doing the exact same thing in the exact same way, but they're each doing their part using what God has given them to value and save human life because Jesus Christ valued and saved theirs. I'm going to go ahead and let the worship team come up. Underneath all those vital, practical ways of helping others, the foundational way that we value human life here at Severn Covenant Church, the foundational way is by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone who will listen week in and week out. If you're human... Full stop, no other qualifiers. We believe that not only are you broken, just like the rest of us, but you're also valuable. So valuable that the Son of God lived, died, and rose again to save you from the floodwaters of sin, evil, and death to make you a part of His new humanity, His new creation. We want every single kind of human life right here because we believe that it's here that you will discover just how unique and valuable your life really is. And so I told you I was going to speak to two, two groups of people. Now, final group of people, if you're listening and you are not a follower of Jesus, let me just give you a simple invitation. We are not perfect, far from it, but we genuinely, genuinely care about you and we care about all of humanity. And the reason, let me, let me make a claim here, the reason that you care about humanity, even if you're not a Christian, the reason you live in a culture that by and large values things like equality and freedom and human rights is because the Christian church, inspired and empowered by their Savior, changed the world by honoring and protecting and loving people that the rest of the world used to consider disposable. If you want a real solid foundation and source for treasuring every human life, including your own, you won't find anything richer, deeper, and stronger than the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So my, my invitation is simple. I would just ask you to believe that gospel, to believe in that Savior. Come be a part of his new humanity where we don't simply set the bar at do not murder. We raise it to cherish every human life just like Jesus. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, I look at my own human life and oh, how easy to see that it is broken. So often I don't treat other humans in my sphere as though they are equally as valuable and unique as I am. In the words that I use, the thoughts that I think, I fail. I'm broken, God. But I'm so glad that in Christ I have hope. In Christ I'm not a finished product, but a work in progress. Thank you so much that by your spirit, completely by grace, by nothing I've done, you decided to forgive me and give me a new heart and create me to be the kind of person you want me to be. And I know this is a room filled with people just like that. But my prayer really is that you would empower us by your spirit, by the example and power of Jesus to begin valuing and protecting and loving and rescuing human lives the way that you do. God, help us to do this because it can be so hard sometimes. I pray for everybody in this room that each of them would begin to understand what their unique talents are, what their unique gifts are, what their unique station in life is, what's the best way they can begin reaching out and promoting human life, maybe in a way that they're not already doing. For those that are doing it, may you give them strength and encouragement that what they're doing is pleasing to you. But God, I would also pray that before we, before we begin thinking these big thoughts of how we can promote human life outside these walls, help us to look around and see how we can treat each other right inside these walls. Help us to see how we can better love one another, be patient with one another, forgive one another, give each other the benefit of the doubt right here inside the church before we take it upon ourselves to go save anybody else's life. Forgive us for where we fail at these things, but thank you so much that you didn't leave us there that you, pr you preserved us, you promote our growth, you protect us, and you call us to do the same. May you help us to live like that. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.